Welcome to the Fabric Podcast, where we explore company culture and how it scales as a company grows. Brought to you by the team at The Receptionist, a bootstrapped Denver-based software company. Each episode of Fabric will set out to uncover unique and uncommon answers to the question, how do companies of any size create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? On this episode of the podcast, we're joined by Carla Johnson, marketing and innovation strategist. She helps people rethink the work they can do and the impact they can have. Being innovative is one of our core values here at The Receptionist, and we love what Carla has to say on the subject. She gives us her definition of the term, breaks down the notion that only certain people are or can be innovative, and shares her five-step process to help people become more innovative thinkers. Through our conversation, Carla discusses how anyone can be innovative, and in fact, it's part of our human nature. Enjoy the episode. Carla, we are so excited to have you on as a guest. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, you have a very impressive career and many experiences. So can you give our listeners kind of a quick intro to yourself and your work? Absolutely. Um, For my whole career, if I had to boil it down to one thing, is that I help people rethink the work that they do and the impact that they can have. And the interesting thing is that it's taken kind of a meandering path to get to where I am today. But as I look in the rear view mirror, it really is all things that were connected. I started out studying engineering in in university and from there ended up with a master's in history of all things, kind of opposite ends of the scale there. Yeah. And and, um, one of my first jobs was doing marketing for an architecture and engineering firm which was a great blend of knowing engineering and and having, you know, at that time taking drafting classes and things like that. And then to be able to tell the story of what was going on because of history and and writing, I've always kind of had a natural knack for writing. And then um, from there, I worked for telecom companies. And one of the things that I saw that was really missing was the ability to tell a story. And then moving that idea of how architects design experiences based on the um, emotion they want to evoke, I took that same kind of approach to marketing and and looked, you know, especially B2B marketing, which is pretty um, product focused and and oftentimes left brain and, and looked at how can we start to bring emotion through story to it. And then what I saw just as a natural segue is the idea of um, doing the work that we do with more innovation and being able to identify opportunities and come up with ideas that have an impact. And then finally teaching others how to do that exact same thing and and connect the dots so they could become how they perceive themselves as innovators, regardless of whatever kind of job title they have. It's so interesting. And I love how you say that meandering. Sometimes like things random, but meandering is a much nicer way to say all of that. (laughs) Now, before we dig into our topic a bit more, you already mentioned the word innovative. So what does it mean to be innovative in your opinion or perspective? You know, Sarah, that's such an interesting question because I just came in from a walk outside and there was a flyer hanging on our front door for a company called Innovative Painting. And I think, you know, the word innovative is so um, cliche and so overused and and I think it's really lost its its true meaning. And when I think of innovative and innovation, for me, I have a very simple definition of it. And it's the ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And there's meaning in each of these you know, small amounts of words. So consistency is a big thing in innovation. It's not just about doing it once. 
and then it's a mic drop and you walk away from there. You know, it's, it's every single day. How can you focus on the consistency of innovation in whatever you do? You know, not every piece, every, every type of innovation is these huge disruptive things. There's also that if you think about quantum physics, it's quantum innovation and just all of these micro things that we do consistently that really turn the ship for a company in a, in a small amount of time. Then the idea of a, an idea of being new, great, and reliable. So a new idea doesn't mean it's never, ever been done before, but maybe it's new for your company. Maybe it's new for your industry. And I love when I came across the, the research that said that the drive-through layout for McDonald's is patterned after a Formula One pit stop. And it oh. makes sense. You know, they both want cars in and out really yeah. fast. And it doesn't mean that McDonald's had to completely come up with their own design, but they were very innovative in looking for inspiration in other places where this was already working and, and transplanting that into their work. But just having a new idea isn't enough. Next, we have to look at the characteristic of great. And I'll be honest, Sarah, like great is a lot more subjective than new right. or reliable. But, but great is one of those things that when you hear the idea, you think, oh, man, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Like, I want to know, I want to be a part of it. It's, it's exciting. It's, it makes you, um, like David Ogilvy talks about, it makes you jealous that you didn't think about it and really brings you in. And you have a, like a physical visceral response to that idea that it's really something you, you find excites you. And then the third characteristic, because just new and just great isn't enough is that it has to be reliable. And a reliable idea is something that makes you money. And I know we've seen a lot of ideas actually be launched and out in the market that never, ever actually make money. And it's the ability to have these money-making ideas that are new, that are great, and consistently delivering them is something that makes somebody innovative. So, I mean, there's plenty of companies that consistently and reliably make money, but you would never say that they're innovative. And so that's why it's this, you know, matrix of these characteristics that truly makes a person or a company innovative. Yeah. And that sounds like a, a tall order to actually be innovative when you, when you break it down like that. So when it comes to innovation specifically in business, can you tell us a little bit more about your view kind of in that sector? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I see over and over again in business is that there's a particular group who's tapped for innovation. They may have a specific innovation title as the, you know, as a group, the innovation team or a chief innovation officer. Um, it could be something along the lines of research and development. It could be the design thinking team, whatever it is. But it is a clearly identified but handful of people who have permission and responsibility for innovation in the company. And what happens in these kind of, you know, traditional companies where innovation is set up this way is that if you ask anybody else in the rest of the organization to come up with a, a new, a different kind of idea and to do to be an innovative thinker, they say, oh, no, no, that's, that's not my job. That's what that team over there does. Like that's their responsibility and here's what I do. And so you limit the ability to have these ideas come forward or everybody outside of that group says, I'm not smart enough to be an innovator. You know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a design thinker. I'm, you know, I don't have that title. That's, that's just not something I could do. But it was interesting when I was researching the idea, you know, the whole topic of innovation is that I found a statistic that said 90% of innovation 
in a company actually takes place outside of traditional innovation groups or product and service development. Yet 75% of investment is put into that 10% of the business for innovation. And I think that's what companies that are truly innovative absolutely get is let's, you know, if, if we have a specific group tapped for it, okay, but let's also invest in the low hanging fruit. That's the other 90% of the company. You know, let's teach people how to become innovative, give them a process so they feel, you know, equipped, so they feel competent, they feel empowered, and they know what to do. So even in in those micro moments or in those big opportunities that come across their desk or in conversations with customers, they know exactly what to do and they can jump on it. And when you have that kind of dynamic in place, that's why we have this envy for the companies like the Google who allow 20, you know, the Google who allows 20% of, you know, of an employee's time to be focused on these side projects because they understand a small handful of people can't, you know, can't solve all the problems that a company has. And if that's the case, you have to teach the skill of innovative thinking, coming up with ideas, critical thinking, so that you can really harness the power of the other 90% of the company. Absolutely. And being innovative is one of our core values. And we really look to the company as a whole to, to bring ideas and work to be innovative. So what are your thoughts on how even our company who is focused on being innovative, but especially other businesses can continue to innovate and rely on that other 90%, as you said, and not just focus on what the 10% or some guru who, you know, I'm innovative and I will teach you the things. How, how can we help others become innovators as well? I, I think the easiest thing that we need to start to do is tell people that they are innovative, you know, to help them identify as an innovative person. And I think that's one of the things that makes my heart hurt when I hear people talk about innovation is people will say, I'm, I'm just not innovative. I'm not a creative thinker. That's just not what I do. I, you know, I've never been good at it. There's research from a gentleman named George Land, who was a systems engineer, so a very left-brain person in the late 1960s. And he started an advisory um, company to teach companies how to bring more creative and innovative thinking into their organizations because he saw, you know, as a systems engineer who looked at how companies in, in general functioned, that it was something that needed to be throughout the company. And a director from NASA came to him and said, I know that we have innovative and creative thinking engineers. We just can't figure out which ones of them, you know, that they are. Could you help with an assessment so we can identify these engineers? And so George created this assessment and, you know, was able to help NASA identify these engineers. But afterwards, he started to think, you know, NASA is one of the most innovative organizations, particularly in the 1960s. How can it be that, that these obviously creative and innovative thinkers don't stand out like that, that they're hard to find? And he wondered what happened between the age of five when we're kids, when, you know, we have a jillion ideas. And by the time you get to being 45 or, or 55 and how that idea of, of thinking in that way happens. And so he took the assessment that he had created and he adjusted it for age and circumstances and he gave it to 1,600 five-year-old kids. And these 98% of the kids tested out at the genius level of creativity. Wow. And then he said, well, you know, still trying to figure out how this problem gets to what it is as adults. So when these kids turned 10, he gave them the assessment again. 
Only five years later, that 98% dropped to 30%, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. As, as the, as the mom of a five-year-old and an almost nine-year-old, that is, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. You move ahead five more years to 15 year olds. And and I have a son who's almost 15 and that number dropped to 12%. So in 10 years, that, that assessment and the ability to um, perform at that genius level has dropped 84%. And now you compare that to the aggregate of over a million adults that George tested throughout his career. And that number had dropped to 2%. Yeah. So it's, it's clear that something happens between, you know, five years old and adulthood where we're teaching, rewarding and engineering the system to essentially say, this kind of thinking doesn't matter. You need to follow the system. You need to do what you're told, you know, don't ruffle feathers, don't challenge the status quo. And so while many companies, you know, say innovation is a priority, one of the things that they're missing is one, a a true definition of what innovation is. And in a lot of companies where I see a definition, I think, you know, it's, it's so long and convoluted. I can't even remember it. And, And this is your core value. Can your employees remember it? But I think the other is, is understanding that innovation is an outcome because of other behavior. So with that being the case, especially as you look at company values, what are the values that drive the behavior that result in innovative results? And innovation in itself, if you look to just reward that, that's what happens to in a lot of company cultures, why there's only 2% of adults who measure at that genius level of creativity is because they're looking at, you know, you're asking me for an outcome that isn't clearly defined that I couldn't tell you what behavior delivers it. And so I'm not going to stick my neck out and, and try and risk in this way because there's the consequences are just too high. Absolutely. And I think based on what you're describing, you know, people lose confidence in themselves to be creative and innovative and they've lost this identity. I mean, I don't know that, well, I think many five-year-olds would believe that they're creative, right? <laughs> they probably don't know the term innovative yet, but yeah. I think over time people probably lose this identity as a creative thinker or being innovative. So how do you help someone become an innovative thinker? You know, what one of the things that I do is, is to remind them that this is something that we do naturally as people. And when I was doing research and came up with a, the five-step perpetual innovation process, what I found is as I developed it and unpacked it and taught it to people, is that there's a lot of neuroscience in it that really taps into how our brains naturally act if we just let them. And I say, just let them for a lot of reasons, like allow ourselves to say, let me just have some space and and look at the world around me and just see what comes to mind. Let's put our phones down. Let's, you know, take, you know, have better sleep so we can pay attention. Let's get away from our normal circumstances. But it really is a a simple step of let's stop and start to use our five senses and observe the world around us. And when you do that, the more time you spend just looking at the world around you, the more things you start to notice. And all of these observations, I think of them as themselves dots when we talk about the, the process of connecting the dots. If you're going to be able to connect those dots, you have to collect as many dots as you can. Then the next step is looking for patterns that you see and and distilling those observations into patterns. And that's something, again, our brain does naturally because what we're looking for are patterns 
that start to help us understand, am I safe? Am I at, you know, danger? Is, you know, is it okay to do this? And so it's your, your brain's way of giving context to everything that you've seen. But the fun thing about your brain and, and how it finds patterns when it distills these observations is that it's always randomly reconnecting the dots and looking at what you observe. So if you sit in the same place today and observe and you do it tomorrow at the same place, your brain may connect completely different things because of other things that you've gone through or thought or you know things you've read or music that you've listened to. But then your brain is still looking for, for patterns and saying, okay, how can I relate what I just observed at this coffee shop into something that I'm doing right here, right now in this meeting? And again, if you allow your brain to do that, you start to say, hey, you know what? One of the things that I noticed that's really great that I observed at the coffee shop with how many different groups come in and they sit down together and they all have their special drink and all of these different things you've observed, the pattern that you see is community. And now you start to relate that into your work and say, you know, maybe we should look at how we can create a a greater community with our customers or develop a community that's helpful to them. And then that moves into the, the fourth step of generating ideas. So you come to that idea generation process from a completely different perspective. And I know you've been in these same kind of brainstorm meetings too, where, or, or on calls where they say, you know, let's, let's brainstorm ideas. And, you know, there's no such thing as a bad idea, but a lot of times some really bad ideas come out of those, those meetings, you know, and then, so if all you have are bad ideas, you know, it, it doesn't matter how great your pitch is. If it's a bad idea, it's bad. But even if you have a great idea, you need that fifth step and that's learning how to pitch it. And then when you use this process of how your brain functions just in everyday life, you're able to tell the story of the journey of the idea and, and how it came up. And so it, it, it gets people excited to pay more attention to the world around them and to start to look at the work that they do from a different perspective. And it, you know, it reignites their interest in what they do every day, which I think especially now in this last year. A lot of people are just, you know, they're really tired. Um, They've had a lot on their plate. They've been in the same kind of work environment and they're looking for something different and unique. And I think to give people that spark of maybe you can sit and listen to your favorite genre of music or watch a concert on TV or, you know, have a, you know, cook something new and have that spark a, a new idea that gives you something that makes you look forward to going to work the next day. It's pretty powerful. You know, it, it really gives people a lot of, you know, zing in their step and, you know, makes them whistle because they start to see how all these things matter. And, and again, it makes them rethink the work that they do and how they can start to have an impact that oftentimes they didn't even think of. Yeah. I love how you took something that feels so daunting to become innovative. And it really just starts with becoming more aware and paying attention and using those senses. So I think that that feels really reassuring, like, okay, (laughs) I don't feel innovative, but maybe I can start the path to that. And um, you just said a word, rethink, you have a new book out, rethink innovation. Can you share with us a little bit about the book and how it's going to help people? Yeah, absolutely. So it launches Tuesday, June 29th. And the whole purpose of my research in the book was to see if I could answer the question, is learning how to consistently coming up with Um, new ideas, something that can be put into a process and taught and practiced and scaled? And the answer is yes. And one of the things that I found about it is that the simplicity of the five steps, the five steps that I just went through, observing the world around you, 
distilling what you see into patterns, relating those patterns into the work that you do, generating ideas and then pitching them. The, the important part is that innovation doesn't have to be something that's complex, expensive, time-consuming. It really has a powerful opportunity when it's very simple because like you said, you break it down and people say, well, yeah, I can sit in a park or a coffee shop and I can use my five senses to observe the world around me and I can start to see those patterns. You know, you don't need a special degree. You don't need a special job title. You don't need a lot of the specific criteria that I think stereotypical innovators have. And that's really the beauty and the potential and the opportunity for companies is that this is a process that anybody in any job position, in any company, in any industry, in any size company, any place in the world can learn and start doing immediately. And so as we look at how can I simply start to invest in the other 90% of the company, that was the purpose behind why I wrote Rethink Innovation is because I wanted to teach people this very simple five-step process so that anybody could be an innovator. I love that. And congratulations on the book. It will be out by the time people listen to this. So definitely check that out. And as we wrap up today, Carla, you've shared so much great information, but any final takeaways or thoughts on the topic of innovation for our listeners? You know, the one thing I want people to really understand is that innovation is everybody's business, especially right now. Innovation is about finding opportunities. It's about solving problems and, you know, looking at how somebody can consistently come up with those new, great and reliable ideas. It's important to remember that if we're truly going to serve our customers and grow our companies, the best part of innovation is about finding those opportunities. Well, thank you, Carla. We really enjoyed having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was really fun to be here. Thank you again to innovation strategist and author of Rethink Innovation, Carla Johnson. Remember to check out the video of today's episode at thereceptionist.com.